Hi, this is Spider-Man, and I'd love to stick around and listen to amazing spider talk, but Madam Web just told me Doc Ock is about to kidnap Mary Jane Watson, and, well, a spider's gotta do what a spider's gotta do. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the founder and editor of SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. And I'm mischievous Mark Chinacchio, the founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Well, thanks everyone for joining us for episode two of season one of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. In this first season of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk, we are taking a closer look at the Stan Lee and Steve Ditko creative run on the title. Today we are talking about just who exactly is Peter Palmer. (laughs) I mean, Peter Parker. And we thought a good lens through which to do so would be the Amazing Spider-Man number one comic. Of course, you can find a copy of Amazing Spider-Man number one just about anywhere, print, digital, or as part of Marvel's Unlimited service. So whether you've read it a million times or never before, we hope you enjoy our episode called Who is Peter Palmer? I was lucky with Peter Parker when I came up with that character because he seems to have struck a chord with with so many readers. And I think it's because he's probably more like a regular person, a normal person than any other character. And I try to make him that way because I guess until Peter Parker, no superhero or no superhero's alter ego had ever had to worry about making a living, um, getting along well with girls, being popular, um, or or have all the problems that... I tried to heap as many problems as I could on poor Peter because I feel most people, even people who seem to be happy, have problems and they have worries. So hopefully everyone has their uh, issue of Amazing Spider-Man number one keyed up. I mean, Dan, we have the issues themselves. <laughs> we didn't have the last <laughs> issue we talked about. <laughs> um, but we have this one, although mine is uh, encased in CGC uh, plexiglass or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, so. my, mine is too. So it is not being read anytime soon. Right. Well, um for people who maybe have it in reprint books or have a hard copy, I mean, I know there are some of you out there. Uh, either way, just a couple of quick facts about the comic. Uh, this was published in March 1963, which was um, a little more than six months after Amazing Fantasy number 15 debuted. Uh, and this was officially Spider-Man's flagship ongoing series. Uh, the events of this issue pick up pretty much immediately following Amazing Fantasy number 15. Uh, historically, beyond the fact that it was the first issue of Amazing, uh, it's the first appearance of J. Jonah Jameson of the Daily Bugle. Uh, it also was uh, marked a team-up of the Fantastic Four, which was the first ever Marvel superhero crossover, which uh, further created that shared universe that Stan Lee was very adamant about having. Uh, and from a villain standpoint, it's the first appearance of the Chameleon, uh, although he wasn't quite as significant. He's more significant of a villain now, but I think in, in you know, for the first 
20 or 30 years of his existence less so. Would you agree to that, Dan? Yeah, it's it's funny how he keeps coming back and he's in the, included in all these major rogues galleries. But it's very infrequent that we get a chameleon story. Yeah. Um, and uh, just just in terms of why we keep making this Peter Palmer joke, uh, the, this is uh, referring to a very famous typo that appeared uh, in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man number one. It was in the in the second story, the chameleon story, uh, where one of Stanley's narrative boxes, instead of referring to Peter as Parker, he refers to him as Peter Palmer twice on the same page. And uh, for whatever reason, in all reprints and like Marvel Unlimited and stuff, Marvel's just left it in. Like they haven't felt like scrubbing that from existence. So this is a this is one of those typos that's very easy to track down. So um, just look for it yourselves and get a giggle out of it. Uh, I I I thought it was funny enough to kind of highlight in my book. Um, And actually, Dan, when I went to buy this comic through um the comic book man reality show <laughs> um we we dropped this knowledge during one of the segments we were taping and the guys who ran that store the jay and silent bob's place seemed moderately impressed that we knew that so whatever. that's cool and of, co- <laughs> of course this moment would go on to be further kind of canonized in superior spider-man number nine uh where peter refers to himself as peter palmer as he's losing his memory of himself so an, another interesting callback to this moment. And I think really the only other time that that is ever referenced in Spider-Man history are in the pages of the comic. Yes, I think so. Although Stan made similar errors in other comics. Like I think he refers to like Bruce Banner as like Bob Banner or something or like Billy <laughs> Bob, Banner. Bob Balaban. Yeah. <laughs> Bob blah, blah. <laughs> there you go. It's so, a great uh, issue. Yeah. I mean this – this is a lot of fun. I mean, it really does kind of outline everything about Peter from Jump Street. I mean, you know, Dan, we, we, we kind of conjured up this list of attributes and traits that we feel define who Peter is as an as a character and, and how they're kind of brought up in this issue. I mean, do you want to kind of start the ball on this or? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's 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 such a great issue for that. Exactly the thing we're going to do. You know, it's. It really, from the get-go, they really figure out who Peter's going to be through all the years. So, uh, yeah, I'll start it off. Um, the first attribute that I really locked on to uh, when I was reading through this is this kind of reluctant hero element to Peter. You know, uh, the first thing that we see in this book is Peter kind of taking his costume and throwing it away uh, in his room. It's not the iconic you know, like costume in the garbage can shot that we would later get in Amazing Spider-Man number 50. But, you know, he's tossing it aside. He wants nothing to do with it. And there's this immediate idea that, like, his powers aren't this great thing. It's more of a burden for him. And I think it's one of the things that set him aside as a character early on is this idea that powers aren't necessarily a great thing. Uh, They're you know, a burden to be carried around. They come with this uh, uh, need for responsibility. Um, And even at the end of the story, you know, Peter says, uh, what good are my great powers if I cannot use them? So already it's, you're seeing this guy wrestle with his powers in a way that I don't think many other superheroes do. Yeah. I mean, in other Marvel comics around this time, you know, Stan had kind of, perfected like the the ashamed monster trope first characters like the thing and the hulk you know that they are transformed into these powerful but monstrous people and they feel bad about that but this is different because it's not that peter thinks he's a monster it's just that you know because of what would later become refined as like the parker luck among other things it's it's like you like he says and like you mentioned dan that he he has these great gifts, but because of, you know, that that huge mistake he made in Amazing Fantasy number 15, it's like he he can't just use them and get rich and, and be happy about it. Like it's just like like it's it's a burden. It's a responsibility. And, and that is and, and this just I mean, not even just multiple times in this issue. I mean, like this is something that is like 
very consistent throughout the entirety of Lee Dicko. And I mean, I, I mean, through all Spider-Man, I mean, you mentioned Spider-Man No More, which was when Ramita was on the book. I mean, how many times has Peter quit being Spider-Man? I mean, it's yeah. like almost become laughable how many times he's quit being Spider-Man. But, but, um, but even even just the little things like going on a date, he'll might have to leave his date because of the burden of his powers, you know, uh, be, because, you know, uh, and, and not only that element, his own guilt firing things, but his powers have also brought negative effects alongside with them, whether it's his blood being radioactive and like, you know, potentially hurting him and, and others, uh, you know, are, are giving him six arms or whatever, like powers have also been portrayed as a negative effect at the same time this was something you know i felt like the raimi movies really captured like probably better than any other spider-man movie at this point right i mean would you agree to that 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 reluctance like you know he really doesn't want to be there (laughs) doing this like and, and probably because the Raimi movies also gleaned a lot from like Spider-Man No More and other things. But like I like I mean I'm even thinking of the first Raimi movie and how it ends with him kind of walking away from MJ because he knows about this cross that he's burying here. And and it's just, it's 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 part of the reason why I love those movies so much. The fact that they like hit on this this very unique attribute that I really can't think of other heroes having it. You know, like to this to this kind of nuanced level. Yeah, it's funny you say that, and I was just thinking about all the movies and and their final scenes, and it, it's uh, not to discount this attribute of Peter, but there's only two Spider-Man movies that don't end with a funeral, and <laughs> and it's Spider-Man Two and Spider-Man Homecoming, my two favorite ones. So That's like, true. I think it's you know sometimes people might lean on this too hard. Yeah. Uh, this this. And de-emphasize the kind of like – it might be a burden, but it's also fun for Peter to yeah. be Spider-Man. And I don't want to get too far ahead, but that was kind of one of the uh, attributes I wanted to kind of highlight as well is the level of joy that Peter has in being Spider-Man. Um, yeah, well, well, like where where did you pick up on that in, in issue one here? Well, I don't think it's so ever-present in issue one. But I did want to point out that, like in issue two of Amazing Spider-Man, um, there's a, even a, 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 a word balloon that says uh, that where Peter says the thing I like best about being Spider-Man is scaling these sheer walls. I don't ever think I'll get a, I'll stop getting a charge out of it, and yeah. it's very gleeful. Yes, and I, and I feel like parts of Amazing Fantasy fifteen are gleeful as well in terms of like him discovering his powers and like I can crush this. I'm gonna go wrestle now. Yeah, I mean, granted, you know, the Uncle Ben moment is what changes everything and and brings on this reluctance. But um, it, it does say something about Peter's personality that that's kind of innately there. I think his humor kind of comes out of that too. That like there's a certain part of him that enjoys doing this. Um, that comes out in his humor and I think his humor is used for a number of things, but I think that's definitely part of it is that he's just kind of gets a kick out of being Spider-Man sometimes. Right. Um, of course, one of the other really big attributes that, I mean, comes out opening pages of this storyline and it kind of goes hand in hand with the reluctant hero element is, Peter the Everyman, and we've talked about this, you know, ad nauseum over the span of this podcast, and you know, we're we're certainly not the only people to to pick up on this, but you know, in this case, it's it's, um, you know, Peter Peter is a superhero with financial problems. I mean, like like like, when do you ever see that? I mean, even. <laughs> You know, it's like you're you're either a billionaire or, you know, if you're someone like the Hulk or whatever, you, you don't really deal with the financial issues of those of those heroes. But, um, you know, again, tying into Peter's Uncle Ben moment because of his his lack of responsibility and, and allowing his uncle to get killed, um, you know, now 
there's no caretaker for the you know there's no breadwinner for the family anymore and aunt may is like you know we see like aunt may trying to pawn jewelry and peter's like i'm gonna have to quit school and and take a job i guess what is he gonna like sweep sawdust at a factory or something <laughs> or, <laughs> whatever you did in the 60s as a teenager to get a job i guess i don't know well, and, it's, and, it's funny how much that's emphasized in the Stan Lee, Steve Ditko run, this kind of uh, quest for money. I, I'm thinking about Spaceballs too. the quest yes. for more money. Uh, <laughs> but uh, almost every interaction he gets into early on is, is his own you know, uh, quest for money. And the power and responsibility almost plays a backseat to these everyman problems, this need – to you know, give his aunt money to stay alive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, and it was because of this that Peter is obviously very relatable. Although, like something that always amused me when I was researching the book, and we had as kind of the the opening to the segment, the quote from Stan, where when, it's funny when Stan gives interviews about Peter. I mean, over the years, like, oh, what makes Peter Parker so unique? And he's like, you know, he's. He's an everyman, and by that he means he gets acne and has girl troubles and 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 has sinus infections. And you know, at like other critics, like there's a quote from um, Jim Shooter where he's like, you know, not to dismiss Stan, but I think he's getting his own character wrong. Like you know, it's 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 much deeper than that. But just in this Dicko Lee run, I want to point out in, in Amazing Spider-Man number nine, there's a scene where it's. Um, He's getting ready to fight Electro and he feels like he's coming down with a cold. And he even says, oh, I wonder how many other superheroes have to deal with sinus infections or something like that. So Stan got to work it in. (laughs) (laughs) He was right at least once. Yeah, he he wasn't completely, uh, you know, blowing blowing smoke up. You you know what about that? And then there was, of course, the big fight with Doc Ock and that two parter. Uh, Was it 11 and 12 um, where He's got he's got a cold and he gets unmasked and everyone's like he can't be Spider Man it's Peter <laughs> and he's and he, and he can't even stand up straight what's up with that? <laughs> um, the next big attribute I wanted to point out and this is one that's just I think really obvious um, is the kind of like Peter's uh, sense of obligation to be Spider Man his need to perform. You know, his actions with responsibility, not only because of the lesson he, you know, learned through his uncle's death, but his own innate sense of responsibility that kind of crystallized within him after that. You know, Dan, over the course of the Lee Dicko run, one of my favorite instances of the whole obligation to responsibility came. It was Amazing Spider Man number five, the Doctor Doom issue, uh, because, you know, Doom is looking to to capture and kill Spider-Man and Flash Thompson is, you know, Peter's tormentor, uh, ends up getting he puts on a Spider-Man costume and gets captured by accident. And like Peter even has this moment of like, well, if Doom kills Flash, I guess it makes my life easier kind of thing. <laughs> like, like. Eh. But then he's like, nah, I got to save him. And it's like, you know, even though Doom is like considered way above Peter's pay grade uh, in this in that story. Uh, but I, I always just got a kick out of that, that it's like, well, you know, I could just let nature take its course. And flashes <laughs> and got himself captured by Dr. Doom. But, uh, you know, he's still because of that. Well, I, you know, it's in my power to at least attempt to save him. I might as well try, even if it means he's going to get killed as a result. So I, 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 I really appreciate that. To me, like of all the in the early issues, that's probably my favorite manifestation of that attribute. And that might be the first time that that attribute really comes at into uh, crystally into focus. You know, like uh, before, whether it's saving John Jameson in the first issue, he's not really doing it. For out of an obligation to responsibility more than he is trying to kind of like correct his name in the newspaper and do something noble. You know, there's some responsibility baked in, but he's really doing it for his own kind of selfish gain to a certain point. So like that doom story, I think is really one of the first times it's really doing it for his own, even fighting Dr. Octopus. He's doing it to sell photos to Jameson. Like, but that one is purely on his own shoulders and uh 
so it is a big part of him, but there is a part of Peter too that doesn't always act responsibly. You know, like he doesn't always make the right choice. And we could list a number of things that he's done that maybe aren't responsible or weren't always the right choice. But the one that always sits with me as uh, kind of an awkward point of contention is Peter's kind of moral ambiguities around taking his own picture and then selling it to Jameson uh, as if, you know, it was him taking pictures of Spider-Man. It's always kind of rubbed me as this weirdly dubious moral ground yeah it it is it's not uh, i mean besides the fact that even i i you know by 60 standards and and you know brian michael bendis when he did ultimate you know this was like one of the first major changes he made to uh peter's kind of not origin story but but you know biography but it is kind of patently ridiculous that some high school kid would like you know, take crappy photos <laughs> of, 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 of stuff and like make a career out of it. But, uh, <laughs> but that aside, um, you know, it is, it's, it's quite dishonest. And, and I, I guess responsibility and honesty don't necessarily have to be synonymous, but, you know, they're, they're kind of, in the same family, right? <laughs> I mean, he does he does lie to almost everyone he loves about his identity, and it gets him into hot water constantly. Yeah, definitely. And just the sheer fact that, like, you know, he's taking photos of someone who wants to defame the name of Spider-Man, and, you know, Peter's just caring about his bottom line. I mean, you know, like, I, I, I don't know where that falls on the morality scale, but it, it does seem odd to me that he would essentially kind of feed his own unmaking, you know? Yeah. Well, the more, the more we talk about this, the more it kind of, I think is like putting it in division for me, why it's so hard to write this character, you know, and, yeah. and why maybe over the years runs of Spider-Man have been so inconsistent, you know, like there haven't been a lot of people that have just, consistently nailed Peter Parker is because he's a man of contradictions. A lot of, yeah. Contradictions and, and a lot of kind of like uh, middle ground morality and uh, tough choices. Not only the ones that he has to make, but ones that people have to make when portraying him. It's also one of the reasons why it drives me crazy when I feel that fans, you know, whether it's of, you know, after reading certain comics or movies or whatever, like, they they hold on to a certain version of this character when like we just mentioned like that version like it's a it's a very filtered version because when you actually go back and and look at both the Dicko Lee run as we're doing and then kind of what followed and came out of that it's like there there isn't a like there are contradictions there isn't a through line so to to say like this is who the character is is like, yeah, in that one given story, that's who this character is. And then two issues later, the character's something else. Or sometimes within the same issue, the character is something else. So, you know, like, there are very, very, very general things that you can say, like, you know, yes, he, he, with great power comes great responsibility. That's an important part of who the character is. But, like, you know, in terms of his morality and his his sense of humor and his, you know, need to be you know is seeking validation his need to be loved that kind of thing the outcast de- uh, geek debate which i want to get to in just a quick second you know all of these things kind of vary um from issue to issue so it's you know when you when when you read i'm thinking of homecoming dan i mean you know we'll we'll talk about homecoming on you know very soon ourselves but you know i'm sure you know the kind of reviews i'm talking about like well this isn't the character i know and you're kind of like who is the character you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> You're like do you do you actually know that character? Because maybe it's it'll be different. It's different every time out, you know. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So you were mentioning this outcast versus geek debate, and we've written yeah, about this yeah. a lot, and and we hear about this a lot. What is this debate? Well, like for me, I feel like, and you know. Like, I feel like this sometimes comes from more casual fans where, you know, they see Peter Parker 
He's he's good at school. He's referred to as a wallflower in the very first panel of his very first story in Amazing Fantasy number fifteen. Um, you know, he's got the you know the glasses and the and the weird haircut, the flat top haircut, and all that kind of stuff. And it makes it makes some people look at all that from afar and just kind of come to the conclusion that he's a nerd or a geek or something like that. And when you actually read these stories and, you know, read ASM one and then everything that follows it, it's, it's, he's not a geek. He's, he's an outcast. And by that, I mean like he, he's not accepted by his peers. He's treated as an outsider. He is trying to i i don't think that he wants to be an outsider he's looking he's seeking some kind of acceptance but um he's not like getting his you know like flash flash bullies him but like it's not like he's getting his like he's not getting atomic wedgies and getting shoved in a locker you know what i mean it's not it's not that kind of crass it's it's just you know flash is an idiot but like in terms of his the rest of his classmates you know they're like Oh, um, you know, like they, they like there's this whole uh, thing in um, the first issue where they're um, going to be attending the Spider-Man show and Peter just like kind of like they're all talking about it, all his classmates. And Peter just kind of announces, well, I won't be there. And they're all like, good. <laughs> we don't want you there. <laughs> you jerk. <laughs> but at the same time, uh, he's always kind of seeking that validation of his peers, you know, like whether it's yeah. through the women in his life or uh, other even other superheroes. You know, in this issue, we have him. He runs to join the Fantastic Four. And yes, he's looking for money, but he finds out that they think he's uh, like a criminal. Uh, and, and not only do they not have money for him, but he gets angry when they think that he's uh, trying to join them for bad purposes. You know, like he's always trying to be well liked, whether it's Flash Thompson or Liz Allen or whoever. You know, like this plays into the outcast thing. Is like he's just seen differently by everybody else, you know. He might not have the social skills to pull it off, you know. But he, but he wants to. Yeah, and then you know because this being Spider-Man, like the fact that he is Spider-Man, I think further drives that wedge between him and his peers. Like, um, you know, there's in Amazing Spider-Man number four, he, you know, Liz, Liz Allen actually agrees to go out on a date with him and Peter blows her off to deal with the Sandman. You know what I mean? Like, And she's like offended by it, which goes to show like they don't necessarily hate him, but they're just like, what kind of flake is this? You know what I mean? And then um, also like I love in the um, the issue Amazing Spider-Man 8 where he has the boxing match with Flash. And, you know, this is kind of like, you know, his moment to exact vengeance, although he has to pull his punches and not like completely cremate Flash. Um, but at the same token, it's like he's 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 getting his moment of validation and, and proving himself in front of his classmates. And then the living brain shows up and he's and he has to run run off to take care of it as Spider-Man. And then, of course, everyone's like, where the hell did Parker go? What a wuss. You know what I mean? Like, where did this, you know? So I, I just love how that like, constantly just drives the wedge and again it's not about him being a geek and like you know like nerdy going around looking you know getting pocket protectors or something like that it's it's about the fact that he's not liked by his classmates they they treat him as an outsider you're not one of us it's about social acceptance it's not about you know a certain kind of stereotype personality that i think some people fall on because he has some of those attributes but not not from a personality standpoint, more like physically, right? Yeah, and I think one of the things that makes it so sweet in these books to read is that, like, social acceptance is always right around the corner for Peter. Like, he could access it immediately if he wanted to, but he has some kind of responsibility that prevents him from doing so. Like, there's a certain point where, you know, in, uh, I think it's ASM 12, where Flash creates the Spider-Man fan club. And he could just very quickly and easily out himself as Spider-Man and be beloved by all of his peers. But because he has to maintain this secret identity uh, for 
reasons that I think are a bit unclear in, in, in these early issues, he's unable to kind of uh, access that. He's always right on the edge of being beloved by everyone, but there's all these yeah. various forces keeping him from doing that. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, you know, and to the point of your secret identity, the, the secret identity thing, it is, it is very odd. Like they're very explicit about it in amazing Spider-Man number one, like that he must keep a secret identity and, you know, but we really don't, by the end of the issue, it becomes clear why that would have to be the case because Jameson has, has stirred everyone up so much against Spider-Man that he's a criminal in this, that like he can't really out himself. But like, you know, the whole scene with the check cashing that I mentioned earlier uh, uh, to you, was that, was that all fair? I'm now trying to remember. <laughs> oh, my bad. Well, I was talking about like the silliness is a scene in amazing Spider-Man one where um, he gets a check from a performance uh, and you know, the guy, the promoter's like, well, who am I making the check out to? And he's like, you mustn't know my identity. Just make it out to Spider-Man. And he goes to the, this is one of my favorite moments in like the, the entire Dick Ole run. And he goes to the bank to cash the check as Spider-Man. And they're all like, how do I know you're not just some joker in a suit? And he's like, but, but it says Spider-Man and I'm Spider-Man. <laughs> and, it's like, and this is ridiculously funny, but like, yeah, it, it doesn't, in the, in that exact moment, it doesn't make sense that he just doesn't make it out to Peter Parker, become Peter, Peter Parker. Cause like before when he was on the Ed Sullivan show and stuff, like I guess he never outed himself as Peter Parker, which makes no sense because how did he get paid for those performances? Here we go. No prize. We got a no prize alert here, Dan or what? Yeah. Someone <laughs> write in and no prize this. It's very odd, but yeah, once, once Jameson starts kind of defaming, spider-man it becomes clear why he would do that and then like once he's in bed with jameson selling him fake photos he really yeah. has to keep that identity a secret yeah and then further along into dick o'lee it kind of evolved into like oh you know if aunt may finds out she'll have a heart attack kind of a thing you know like it'll just kill her which is kind of i feel like more than anything else has become like in all other media the staple as to why he must keep it a secret because Aunt May will just freak out or die. <laughs> well, I, not to get too far ahead, because this is in the Romita run, but like I think that's one of the greatest contributions that the Green Goblin character brings to Sp the Spider-Man mythos is that suddenly it's a personal battle, and the reason for him hiding his identity goes beyond any ramifications from Aunt May or any of that stuff. It's that his villains could make it personal all of a sudden. And I think that's really reflected in the movies. I mean, even Homecoming or uh, – I don't want to give anything away, but Homecoming or Spider-Man 1, it's all about you know, like avoiding the personal entanglements associated with these villains. Yeah. Um, so speaking of, of Homecoming, and again, I don't want to spoil our own eventual discussion of it, Dan – but, you know, this idea of Peter seeking validation, I feel like of all the critical reviews I've read of Homecoming, this was the one that's kind of picked up the most is that, um, you know, they find that Peter is like too desperate for validation from like Tony Stark and like the Avengers. And it's kind of like, well, where, that's, where is this coming from? You know, what drives him in the comics is his obligation to uh, avenging his mistake with Uncle Ben, which is true. I mean, that's definitely a, a driving force. But there are there is a lot of Peter seeking validation in this comic, you know, like like, you know, the the, the first instance, of course, is um, saving Jameson's kid. He just decides like, oh, you know, I, I, I got to I got to show up where this where this editor's son who's been killing me in the press is going into space. And, and then like things go awry. It's like, well. If I save him, then he'll have to stop hating me, right? I mean, that's kind of yeah. what the what the what the train of thought is. It's not, oh my God, that guy's gonna die, and only I can save him because it's not entirely clear that Peter can save him, but he's gonna try because he wants to clear his name. <laughs> 
And I, and at the same time, he doesn't want to showboat about it too much either, because the minute he lands the capsule, he goes running away from it, and he says, "I better make myself scarce now. I'd just be embarrassed if everyone wants to congratulate me and make a big fuss about what I've done." So right. he's like wants the validation, but he doesn't really want to be involved in it in any way. Yeah. And then, obviously, later in the issue, he goes to try and join the Fantastic Four. Now, that's a fiscal incentive um, as well, but it's also about legitimacy. You know, it's like if I'm on this team, then people will have to – because I think he – if not in this issue, certainly during this run and early in the run, he talks about how, you know, the Fantastic Four can just be out and about with who they are and what they do without – repercussions and consequences and and he clearly desires that um and and beyond that when he's with the fantastic four in this issue you know what causes him to kind of like run away eventually you know like he he gets into this like rowdy fight with them where you're, you know and it just kind of shows his you know going back to the whole outcast thing it just shows his lack of like social graces like he's not even like hey i'm here because i want to try out for you guys he's like i'm gonna i'm gonna prove to you that i should be on your team by trying to humiliate all of you <laughs> um <laughs> and after going through all that you know what what drives him away from the scene is is them kind of being like hey aren't you like wanted by the police and then he's like, oh, crap, if you think that, then I, I'm, I'm safe nowhere. And he just takes off. And I just I just found that very interesting that that, that you know, so again, like he it's it's him being invalidated by like Reed and Sue and all them that kind of makes him then reconsider his options and get the heck out of there. Well, speaking of these two moments, the Fantastic Four uh barge in and saving the shuttle, I think it highlights another major element of who Peter is, especially who he is as Spider-Man, is that he's an impulsive guy. You know, like, uh, even now, after all these years of him being a superhero, he still tends to rush into combat without much forethought. He is a guy that just acts. And typically because things are acting outside of his control, and he really is just able to respond to them. Um, but he's not one for planning things. No. And like, you know, in all of his like major battles that follow, like his first fights with the Vulture, Doc Ock, Sandman, Electro during this run, it's kind of funny because like they all follow a very similar blueprint, which is, I mean, to be fair, it's a very comic booky blueprint when you're introducing a new villain, you want the villain to kind of appear as a threat. So how do you do that? You show him getting the better of the hero initially, but like here, like, Part of the reason why the villain always seems to get the better of Spider-Man is because when Spider-Man first goes into combat, he kind of underestimates and just goes, ah, I'm just going to, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a villain with wings. I'll just, you know, shoot my web up there and I'll take care of him. And without thinking about an actual strategy or like, oh, this guy, <laughs> electric, he can electrocute people. I'm just going to grab him. <laughs> um. But then he eventually ends up beating them, and I think this is the next big thing that's a big part of the character is that he's a smart guy. He's got a real intellect, you know, uh, and I think it's something that was missing from the Raimi movies. Um, not only did they give him organic web shooters that weren't of his own creation, but he didn't really use his brains often to bring down the enemy. Um, but even as early as issue two, you know, he creates – as ridiculous as it is, this anti-magnetic, anti-magnet, like <laughs> machine to bring down the vulture, um, you know, and the vulture, like he literally flies around town thinking about how no one is able to solve how he could fly. So it's all about the writers setting up this intellectual challenge for Peter and. You know, without fail, almost every enemy that he beats is by outthinking them, whether it's adding some kind of chemical to his webbing or creating some new device or tracker or yeah. spider sense trapping nonsense. Sand, trapping Sandman into the janitor's closet, then using a vacuum, which is still like my yeah. favorite fight. <laughs> or Or the problems that he finds himself stuck in are like weird physics problems, like when the vulture throws him into 
the um, water tank, you know, he has right. to like use physics to find his way out. And there's a real like emphasis on how Spider-Man manipulates his powers and his devices and physics and all this stuff that really lands in this kind of intellectual space that I don't think the Hulk is really operating much in. No, no. Maybe that's a and bad comparison. This is like, well, Banner, yeah, Banner is obviously brilliant, but, you know, as the Hulk, less so. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's one of the big things, obviously, like like Peter's intellect gets held on consistently from, you know, to this day. I mean, you know, every representation of the character, the character is smart. You know, he, he, he's, a, he's self-sufficient and, and can figure things out and can problem solve. Um, on a sliding scale. Sometimes he's too smart in the comics, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, it's fair. But, yeah, generally he, he can figure it out. Um, now, here's something that is certainly a part of the Lee Dicko version of Peter, um, but wavers going into the future. The idea of Peter having, like, being arrogant and, and, and cocky and showing hubris. I mean, like, you know, like he... He likes to certainly later on in, in Spider-Man comics, he'll taunt his opponents and stuff, which kind of shows cockiness, although we kind of also see that as a, like a defense mechanism. But here, like there are many parts of this first story here where not only is like Peter being very snide and kind of dismissive of whether it's his classmates calling them kids, you know, like like the other kids, <laughs> um, I, but and other heroes. Um, but they even like bait the idea that he can go rogue, which is just really fascinating. Yeah. Even the end of this issue, amazing Spider-Man number one, it ends with the fantastic four speculating that Spider-Man might end up becoming a villain. Like talk about a weird way to end the first issue of, of this character's series. And they don't really, Later, like even in the next couple of issues, I feel like they don't necessarily tease that Peter is going to become a villain. Like they kind of they kind of resolve that quickly. But the his the chip on the shoulder that he has that goes all the way back to the cover of Amazing Fantasy 15 that someday I'll show them attitude. Um, that that is really core to these Dicko Lee issues. Like and and that's probably reflective of. Dicko and his um, objectivism and, 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 you know, being a disciple of, of Ayn Rand and all that. But it is interesting to see how it manifests itself just in this first issue. I mean, he's, he's you know, and again, also ties into the outcast debate, but he's not a lovely guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I always think about uh, Strange Tales Annual Number 2, where Peter literally goes and breaks up a party that the Fantastic Four are having just to be a jerk. Yeah. Well, that happens uh, issue eight too, right? Or or are, they, or are you mixing the stories up? I'm trying. To I think could here. be mixing the stories up. Yeah, it's like Johnny Johnny Storm is throwing like a like a looks like a you know a teeny bopper party, and Peter's just like eh, I'm gonna I'm gonna bust it because I'm an ass. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like here's like you know I I know like. Depending on your interpretation of the scene, it probably could be worse or worse than it really is. But like in this issue, when when Peter is fighting the chameleon, you know, and there's all this like, you know, the chameleon's pretending to be Spider-Man, which makes it more confusing. And there's a part towards the end of that story where like there's this big kerfuffle and no one is no one is quite sure who is who. Um, and in the, the police finally have the chameleon in, his, in their grasp. So. Spider-Man is just kind of like, they can handle it from here. I'm out of here. You know what I mean? Which is kind of like, oh, you know, like he's not actually going to stick around to make sure like the chameleon doesn't give him the slip. I mean, that's kind of interesting to me. Yeah, that is interesting. It's it's a, it's kind of a weird like alt representation of the Uncle Ben moment where like he's not really making sure that the thief was – our burglar was apprehended. But – uh, yeah, it's an interesting. It's an interesting beat to see immediately again in the next issue. Definitely. Are there any other big attributes we should hit upon here? Well, I did want to talk about like not necessarily attributes, but misconceptions about the character. Things that 
I don't know. I, I hear all the time people are like, oh, that really sounds like Spider-Man or that was a really great representation of Spider-Man. And like we said, there's a lot of ways to read the character. And the character often contradicts himself. Are there any things that like people you hear say all the time that you're like, you know, that might not be so accurate? Right. Well, I think like in terms of the sense of humor, like there's like the sense that like Spider-Man is like so quippy and so funny. He's almost like a non fourth wall breaking, non self-aware version of Deadpool. And that's just not true. Right. I mean, like I, I, I just don't see that here at all, especially in the Stanley Steve Ditko run. I don't think he's that funny more than he is awkward And if he is funny, it's only with select people, like when he's mocking Jameson. But even then, that only gets turned up louder during the Romita run. Yeah, and the fact that, like, Stan Lee basically sees himself as Jameson, I mean, like, I almost feel like the reason why Peter is so funny around Jameson is because Lee is just being self-deprecating of himself. Yeah, and obviously this humor would develop over time. Like, Lee would lean into that, I think, when he got a little more comfortable with the character, but um, I think there are a lot of times where people tend to overdo it. Yeah. But there's appropriate times when Spider-Man's humor comes into play. How would you say Spider-Man's humor um, is a representation of his character? Like, like, what what do you, how do you think the humor is utilized when it's utilized the best? I always feel it's, it's less about what he says in costume, but like you kind of referred to, it's about, him being in awkward situations because of the fact that, as we discussed earlier, he's an everyman. He's a relatable character. He he deals with with social problems and physical problems that other heroes don't. And I feel like when that is kind of illuminated, you know, again, when I talk about the check cashing scene in this issue, like it's one of my I think it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Yeah. And you get a lot of that, you know, or like. You know, him having to fight Flash Thompson, you know, box Flash Thompson and like basically like having to fight him just so. To me, that's hilarious that like he just can't clobber him because it's, it's like, well, even then or or like the, the whole thing with Dr. Doom, like, oh, well, I could just let him go and die. But I guess I got to do something about it. You know, like that's that's the humor. That's where this is a very funny comic book series to me, not. Him calling Doc Ock, you know, well, not calling Dr. Octopus Doc Ock or, uh, you know, hey, Sandy or uh, (laughs) I don't know. That might just be me. Yeah. I mean, I I like the humor element of Spider-Man, but only when it's being utilized as kind of like a defense mechanism, you know, like where he knows he's, you know, going up against something far greater than himself and he uses it to kind of disarm people. But I think... There are writers, and I could list them, that like write Spider-Man like he's Deadpool. You know, like that he's just as constantly zinging one-liners like they are fists. Um, and I mean, I think even Homecoming has some of that. Although I think he's constantly in over his head in that movie, so it makes sense that he's kind of making fun of it, or that he's being arrogant and expressing his humor that way. And I think so often the humor is not used as a way to highlight who Peter Parker is as a character, and that's when it doesn't work. Definitely. Um, You know, we refer to this, just another misconception that we referred to earlier is like the whole, like, he's an everyman character because, like, he gets pimples and acne and and has colds and, uh, you know, and girl trouble, which, you know, Again, yeah, like he's asking out Liz Allen and, you know, we see her initially saying no, but she does eventually say yes. And then that also leads to this love triangle through all of these issues between Betty Brant and Liz Allen. For someone with girl troubles, Peter has a lot of love triangles in these comics. (laughs) No kidding. No kidding. Um, Another one I wanted to kind of – push past or you know run by you is uh that peter parker doesn't have the capacity to kill um Mm. i know that people you know he's kind of got this uh, like unspoken and sometimes spoken i don't kill code and i think the code 
is always there. He never wants to kill, and he will go out of his way to not kill. But that doesn't mean that, like, Peter Parker is a perfect guy and that he won't kill someone. Now, that's not to say that he has killed someone. Uh, anytime that he has, it's been kind of, you know, misconstrued as an accident. But there are times where he's gotten very close to it. Uh, yeah. Uh, what do you think about that? Do you think that the character has it within him to kill someone or at least take it to that level? I still just haven't seen it. Like to me, the, the, and this is jumping way ahead in, in history here, but like the moment that always kind of draws that line firmly in the sand that he won't cross that line is his fight with the green goblin after Gwen's death. Yeah, because he has him on the ropes and he's ready to give him the killing blow. And then he goes, no, I will not stoop to your level. Like it's a very conscious decision. And I feel like I guess there's this possibility like in his impulsiveness that something a mishap can happen. But again, that is always, as you mentioned, construed as a as an accident, a mistake. But like I think as long as he's being very conscious of it, he would not kill. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and then, of course, like kind of part and parcel with that, this idea that Peter always does what's best. He always makes the moral choice. We talked about this earlier just in terms of the photography. Like, that's just not true. And, you know, I remember when, you know, one of the first episodes of this podcast we did, Dan, was – um, superior, you know, kind of the lead up to Superior Nine, and and when Peter, Ghost Peter, hesitated in Superior Spider-Man about him doing the surgery on the child, and and like that just like made fans go ballistic, or certain fans go ballistic over Peter would never hesitate with a child's life is on the line, and it's like again, it's all over the place, and in, in, in both this issue and throughout Lee and Dicko that like. Sometimes he he has moments of uh, where he makes the wrong choice and he has to learn from that mistake to make the right choice. Like he, he he's kind of a jerk at times or doesn't think things through or, you know, is being selfish. And that's it's essential part of who the character is. He's not Captain America. Absol you know? Absolutely. Which is funny because as we're discussing all these attributes that we think define the character, I feel like the character's slipping through my grip. You know, there's just so many warring facets to him, and yet there are people that are able to write him perfectly. You know, it's just, it's such a, 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 a tightrope walk, a balancing act of all these warring elements that I think makes him so relatable because we're all not so clear. We're all not so clean as individuals and that's what we like is a guy who is constantly wrestling with all these various elements of himself and in all these different scenarios uh it's just what makes peter such an interesting character and i kind of like that as we were defining him using this issue we even have gone back and and been maybe like counter our own point ourselves yeah well you know I think I think now with this episode being recorded and part of the archives, we have officially defined Peter Parker, Dan. <laughs> he's no everybody. More arguments. <laughs> he's everybody and nobody. Exactly. <laughs> what a cop out. Oh, Dang it, well. so true. <laughs> well, I'm glad we did this. Uh, it's been a bit of a roundabout conversation, but uh, you know. I think it's totally fitting for who this guy is. Uh, I hope you guys go and read Amazing Spider-Man number one if you haven't already because all these things we discussed will be on display. And it's just a really great, fun story uh, that if you saw Spider-Man Homecoming, you'll find a lot of similarities uh, too. So uh, it was fun to revisit this, Mark. Absolutely. So thanks for joining us for our second episode of our first season of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. Dan, our next episode will be out in two weeks, July 19th. And uh, what's the title for that show? Yeah, it's going to be a show called Powers, Costumes, Gadgets. Oh, my. 
Oh we're, my. Yes, oh my indeed. We're going to be breaking down the origins, behind the scenes, and developments of all of Peter's classic powers, costumes, and gadgets as presented in the pages of Stan Lee and Steve Ditko's creative run. That means we're going to be talking about how the spider sense changes every issue, how spider tracers were these like kind of weirdly large things he could throw at people, how he could use a radar thing to kind of track them down that, and, <laughs> and how the chameleon contact Spider-Man using yeah. the radio waves. It's a whole thing. We're going to go into right. all of it. Or how, like, you know, when he was, like, two-faced, it's like, my Spider-Man side is picking this up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Also, for our uh, Patreon subscribers, uh, check out our Patreon page and uh, your podcast feed for a special review of Amazing Spider-Man Volume 4, Number 30 by Dan Slott and Stuart Eminen. Uh, Also, there's a review up there of Spectacular Spider-Man Number 1, which was a Swarm B-book. So uh, be sure to check that out. And then uh, also Patreon subscribers will get early access to our forthcoming review of Spider-Man Homecoming. Awesome, Mark. I'm excited to have those conversations. Yeah. So and of course for Patreon for just $3.99 a month, price of a new comic, you'll get access to these new issue reviews, Swarm B-Book reviews, mailbags, all these exclusive behind-the-wall episodes. So $3.99 a month. Uh, and if you want to do $10 a month or more, we, we'll, we'll take more, uh, you'll get access to a very special commissioned piece of artwork. Awesome. Um, yeah, I think so. How I do mean, people How do people find this, Mark? Well, if you go to either of our sites, Dan, um, SuperiorSpiderTalk.com or Chasing Amazing Blog and click on the links to the Friendly Neighborhood Spider Talk Members Club, that will bring them to Patreon. Awesome. Well, Mark, you mentioned your website. Where can people find you on the internet for the next two weeks? Uh, well, of course, you could also find me on Twitter at ChasingASMblog. And uh, please pick up my book, 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, available online uh, through triumphbooks.com and pretty much everywhere where books are sold. Uh, and if you have books and you haven't yet, and you've read them, leave reviews on Amazon or barnesandnoble.com or Goodreads or wherever you like to review things. It helps get the word out about the book. Dan, what about you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at at SupSpiderTalk. I'm going to be making some guest appearances on a bunch of podcasts over the next two weeks. I'm going to be appearing on the Spider-Man Minute podcast that discusses all the Spider-Man movies one minute at a time. It's pretty exhaustive and in-depth so if you're looking for something like that it was a lot of fun to go on that show i'm also going to be on the ultimate spin podcast where i'm discussing the first issue of spider-man 2 uh so that was a lot of fun and um i'm also reviewing amazing spider-man all the new issues over at superiorspidertalk.com of which i'm also the editor of and you can read all the awesome stuff our team is doing over there and Dan, you had a bunch of stuff on Hollywood Reporter lately, right? You should plug that. Oh, I oh yeah, I should. Uh, I wrote two big articles related to Spider-Man: Homecoming for the Hollywood Reporter. Um, I wrote one called uh, "Why Spider-Man Means So Much." It's basically a rundown of my kind of love of the character and my experiences seeing all of the films in the theaters as they came out. Um, so, if you want to kind of get an idea of what I thought of Spider-Man: Homecoming, you can. Read that article. And then I did another one that was really fun to do. It's called The Definitive List of All of the Spider-Man Homecoming Easter Eggs. And I found about 40 kind of references and Easter eggs in Spider-Man Homecoming. And I was very proud to to have my editor call it The Definitive List because I don't think there's another list on the internet that goes, you know, as in-depth as I did into all the little things hidden in Spider-Man Homecoming. So you can find all of those um, on The Hollywood Reporter, and I'll include links in the show notes to those as well. Yeah, I, I, The Hollywood Reporter was actually kind to both of us. They, uh, a couple of days before Homecoming opened, they ran an excerpt of my my book, uh, The Vulture Chapter, which I thought was pretty cool. So, I mean, your stuff I felt was much more current and awesome (laughs) so uh, i definitely urge everyone to check that out but um you know obviously hollywood reporter 
must be either a fan of the show or just has, you know, a fan of you and sort of me. So it's a good stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's a fun place to write for. Well, let's close it out, Mark, with um, a quote that we're always sure to remember. Yeah, well, that quote would be, with great podcasts must also come the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. 